King David answered, Summon Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. The king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has saved my life from every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, and did obeisance to the king, and said, May my lord King David live forever. The story of Bathsheba in the Bible is like a litmus test. How you read and interpret it is a very good indicator of how you see the role of women in the Bible, and perhaps even in society. There is a long tradition of painting Bathsheba as a temptress who led King David astray. I do not see her like that, but I don't exactly see her as a mere victim either. At least, not if you look at her entire story. She is a compelling character who found her own way to succeed, and I want to give an opportunity for her story to be told from her point of view. There is a trigger warning on this episode. It does include an account of violent sexual assault, because I believe that that is what is there in the biblical text. Some may not be willing or able to deal with such a narrative, so by all means give this episode a miss if you need to. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.11 You saw her bathing. What were you doing on the roof? Bathsheba sat in her chambers and waited. She was waiting for the king to summon her. This time, she wanted that summons to come, and she was sure that it would, but waiting can be a hard thing. There is nothing to occupy the mind, and so it tends to drift. Bathsheba could not help herself. She began to remember another time, so many years before, when she had received a summons from King David. She had been little more than a girl, a girl who had seen no more than 13 summers. She had been recently married by her father to a man named Uriah, a Hittite, and a warrior in the king's army. Uriah seemed to be a kind man, but he was somewhat distracted by his military duties. As a foreigner in the army of Israel, he was determined to make a name for himself so that his comrades would honor him. He spent very little time with her. 
Bathsheba had been married to him before the time of her first bleeding, and so they had not yet known one another as man and wife. But then, while he was away fighting the king's wars in Ammon, it had finally happened. She was a woman, and she looked forward to giving her husband the news when he returned. At the end of her days of impurity, as the custom demanded, Bathsheba ordered the servants to prepare her a ritual bath for cleansing and purification in the central courtyard of the house. There, attended only by two maidservants, and hidden from the eyes of any who would pass by on the street outside, she descended into the water and felt as clean as she ever had in her life. Jerusalem was not a large city, and it was tightly packed. All of the houses were of the same size and height, save one. The house of the king, built on a rise in the land, towered a full story above all the rest. Made out of cedar and decorated with ivory, it was a wonder. As she luxuriated in her bath, Bathsheba looked up over the walls of the courtyard to the portion of the sky that was blocked by the king's house. She suddenly stiffened. There, protruding from the roof, she saw the silhouette of a head. As she looked closer, she saw that it was a man, a man who was looking straight at her with undisguised lust. Something within her told her that the head must belong to none other than the king himself. Bathsheba hadn't known that the king was in his house. She, like everyone else, assumed that he had gone with his army on their campaign. It was what a king was expected to do after all. But David, who had fought so hard to become king, was beginning to get tired of fighting. He felt as if it was time for him to rest from all of that and just take care of himself for a change. So he had stayed in Jerusalem but it didn't quite work out as he had expected. He was so mortified at the thought that people might think that he was shirking his duty as king that he hadn't dared to let anyone know that he was there. He had not done anything in the city, skulking instead around his house like a ghost. Only one thing gave him some solace, and that was when he could go up on the roof of his palace late in the day and look out over the city and think of all that he had gained for his efforts. He ruled over all of these people. He had absolute authority over their lives. That, at least, felt good. It felt particularly good on that afternoon when he realized that he could see right into the courtyard of his neighbor Uriah's house, where the man's wife was taking her purification bath. 
Bathsheba called her servants and exited the bath quickly. She had recognized the look on the king's face. She had encountered it often enough in her life. She had always been seen as a girl and a woman of great beauty, and she had always known this to be more of a curse than a blessing, as men leered at her and grabbed at her in the marketplace and made obscene offers to her father that he, to his credit, had always firmly rejected. But her father was not here to protect her now. He had passed that responsibility off to Uriah, who was also absent. Bathsheba knew what the king was about to do, and she knew that she would have no means to resist anything that he should ask. And so she dressed, and had her servant braid her hair and paint her face, and then she sat to wait for the summons she knew would come. And now, years later, as she awaited yet another summons from the same man, Bathsheba sat and reflected on how she had changed. She was no longer a wide-eyed teenager, afraid of everything. She was still considered to be a great beauty, but the beauty of her youth had now matured and taken on legendary status in the city. Back then, she had been completely powerless, and she had known it. When the summons came from the king, she knew that there was no point in resisting or refusing. She got up and meekly went with the king's servants. When she arrived in the king's bedchamber, the man had a wild look in his eyes. He said nothing to her. He didn't even dismiss the servants. He just grabbed her and literally ripped the clothes from her body. There was more anger than there was love or even lust in his actions. He was, in that moment, a man who was angry with his situation, angry with himself for his failures to be the leader that he thought he was supposed to be, angry with the God who put limits on what he could or could not do. And he took all of that anger out on the defenseless girl who had been brought into his presence. He bruised her, brutalized her, and did not much care when he left her in tears. It was the worst moment of Bathsheba's life. When he was done, he wouldn't even look at her. It was like the mere presence of her was a condemnation of him and his actions. It was the palace servants who cleaned her up, found a cast-off robe for her to wear, and sent her back into the streets. As she made the short walk back to her husband's house, she knew that she could not show any emotions. She dried her tears and lifted her head and did not dare to look into the eyes of any servants as she entered the house. She hoped that that would be the end of it, that she would hear nothing more from David 
who clearly did not want to have anything more to do with her. And maybe over the years, she would eventually come to forget what had happened to her. But that was not meant to be. A month later, her bleeding had not yet come, and she began to fear the worst. After Bathsheba sent the message to the king, telling him that she was expecting a child, he did not communicate with her. But she understood exactly what he was doing with his clumsy attempts to cover up what had happened. Shortly afterwards, she heard that her husband Uriah had come to the city. He did not come to his house, but instead went straight to the palace to give the king an update from the front. If David had expected Uriah to retire to his own house after making his report, thus giving plausible deniability for the paternity of her child, he clearly knew nothing about this soldier who served in his army. Uriah, a foreigner serving together with so many Israelite brothers in arms, was fanatically devoted to being more Jewish than his Jewish comrades. He would never seek the comfort of his own home while his comrades were enduring the discomfort of campaigning. He slept in the court of the guard, and even when the king plied him with much wine during a second day in court, he still did not return home to his young wife. When Bathsheba heard on the third day that Uriah had returned to the wars, she had a strong premonition that she would never see him again. David and Bathsheba did not have anything resembling a covenanting or marriage ceremony. When the news of Uriah's death in combat came back from the front, sent first to the palace and then to Bathsheba, the king merely sent for her once again and had her possessions moved into his harem. She was relieved to learn that she had at least been granted the status of a wife, not a concubine, no doubt because of the status of her father. And so she was moved into the apartments of the wives where she soon became friends with Abigail and Michal, both of whom lived there estranged from their shared husband, who never sent for them. The three of them became quite close over the years, and they certainly held no illusions about the true nature of their common husband. Things did change for a while, when Bathsheba's child was finally born, and it was a son. The child was very small and grew only slowly, but he was beautiful, and Bathsheba was in love for the first time in her life. Suddenly she entered into the king's consciousness, and they did spend some time together. 
There was something endearing in how David held his child and looked at him. And for a while, Bathsheba began to see David a little bit differently. And then came the day when everything changed. Bathsheba knew nothing about what had happened at the time, but she later became a friend and ally of the prophet Nathan, and he told her that he had come to know the story of what the king had done to Uriah. News had filtered back from the troops of a royal command to place Uriah in a precarious position and then have everyone else withdraw. The soldiers knew that it was intentional, and it didn't take long for Nathan to figure out what might have motivated the king to commit such a heinous act. So Nathan went, and he confronted the king. Shortly after the confrontation, David came and sought out Bathsheba, where she sat beside her sleeping child. David was so pale that Bathsheba feared he was sick. But he wasn't sick. He was filled with dread. I know that I have done wrong, he said, and we will be punished for my sin. I just know that this child will not live. When Bathsheba heard this, she knew that it was true. In fact, she had already feared it as she watched the child struggle to gain weight. And so she and David had wept together forming a closer bond in their grief than they had ever known before. The child did die. And because they now shared a grief that no one else could understand, the bond between David and Bathsheba only grew. Nothing was forever with David, but for a season he devoted himself exclusively to her, until finally she conceived again. She named her second son Solomon, and in something resembling love, David made a vow to her that one day, even though he was not the eldest son, Solomon would sit on his throne and rule in his place. And now, as she awaited yet another summons from the king, so many years later, Bathsheba knew that her life, and the life of her son, and so much else, now depended on David remembering the promise that he had made. But David's memory these days was anything but a certain thing. 
David was no longer the man he had once been. His mind, the mind that had once been so effective in politics and military tactics, seemed to be slipping. Even his legendary sexual appetites were waning. The counselors of the kingdom, seeking to make a demonstration that the king was still able to hold his own in the bedroom, had conducted a nationwide search to obtain him a new bed warmer. A beautiful young girl named Abishag, a Shunammite, had been chosen and placed in the bed of the king. It would have confirmed that the king was still the man that he had once been if it had worked, but it turned out to be a complete failure. In fact, the rumors that spread like wildfire around the palace and even into the city were that David had barely even acknowledged Abishag's existence and that she, seeking a protector and a chance to make something of herself, had begun sleeping with Adonijah, one of the king's sons. People began to think the unthinkable, that David was done. And now, with the leadership vacuum, Adonijah was making his move. He was recruiting fighters to form his own elite bodyguard and performing public sacrifices. If David didn't do something soon to rein in his oldest remaining son, everyone would just start treating him as the heir apparent. There would be no undoing it once the king had died. And so Nathan and Bathsheba had conspired together. Even now, the prophet was in the king's presence, trying to spark the man's memory. If he was successful, Bathsheba could expect a summons at any moment. This time, like never before in her life, she was ready for what would come next. She wasn't a girl who had just purified herself from her first bleeding anymore. She would not be any man's plaything. She was Bathsheba, and as Queen Mother, she would guide not only her son but also the entire nation into a future better than anything that David had been able to bring about. Okay, I looked. I looked really closely at the story of David and Bathsheba in the second book of Samuel for some indication that Bathsheba set her bath up on the roof of her house and started bathing where she was sure that King David would see her and be tempted by her. Here is the plain truth. The text just doesn't say that. And yet everyone from Leonard Cohen on down will swear to you that David saw her bathing on the roof. The Bible is actually quite clear that it was David who was on the roof and that he was using his power and privilege as king and his tall house to spy on his female subjects inside their private homes. What's more, there really is no question 
that what David did to Bathsheba was rape. He raped her. That is true whether you accept the ancient Israelite definition of rape or the modern definition. Bathsheba was in no condition to consent to having sex with David because she was in no position to refuse. David had so much power and she had so little that refusal was simply not an option for her. So why is it that people so consistently get this part of the story wrong? It is part of a long-standing habit of men wanting to portray themselves as helpless in the face of feminine wiles and of people wanting to hold victims responsible for the bad things that have happened to them. It is a relic of patriarchy, and we need to get over it. But I also felt that it was a bit unfortunate that the rape incident is all that people know about Bathsheba's story. The biblical authors gave her a starring role in another drama as well, the succession drama of her son, King Solomon. There, she's not a victim, but she takes her place as the most powerful woman in the entire kingdom, the Queen Mother. Queen mothers were far more important than were royal consorts because a king could have many wives, but only one mother. I find it refreshing to see Bathsheba take on such a powerful role after everything that has been committed against her. It seems a moment of redemption. I'd also just like to mention one other figure in the succession drama, Abishag the Shunammite. She also has a very important story arc that is only hinted at in this episode. Perhaps there's another story here that needs to be told. Maybe the working title should be The Shunammite Who Abishagged Me? That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please come back for a new episode at the end of next month. There may also be a special episode in the interim, so keep an eye on the feed. Please tell other people about this podcast and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da, and the mood music for this episode is String Impromptu Number One. The music is by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under the Creative Commons. You will find links to it in the show notes. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.